Welcome to the Leave Insert Guidance Podcast. My name is Donico O'Mahony. I'm a secondary school guidance counsellor, and I also run the Leave Insert Guidance Instagram page. On today's show, I'm going to be joined by UCAS expert David Hawkins from the University Guys. David and I talk about what Irish students need to know about the UCAS application, understanding entry requirements, how to pick a college and a course in the UK, tips for teachers and guidance counsellors on writing references and giving predicted grades. Okay, so I'm joined by David Hawkins here from the University Guys. David has been on the podcast before. You're very welcome back on, David. Thank you, Donica. Always a pleasure to spend a bit of time with you. And I know you're crazy busy at the minute, David. There's lots going on for you because you're an international counsellor, so you're helping students go into America, Europe, Canada, just to name a few. We try. You try. A few coming to Ireland as well. We love Irish universities and love speaking to you, Donica, and trying to help some Irish students. Brilliant. So that's great, David. So yeah, David's come on to help some Irish students kind of understand the UCAS system more. There is a, a deadline coming up in January, which David will chat about, and the significance of that. So even if you haven't started a UCAS application, there is still time. So David, you know, with the UCAS system being so different uh, to the CAO here in Ireland, what should Irish students know about the UCAS application? Yeah, so there's a sort of philosophical side of it, which is broadly similar, which is that you're applying to study a course at a university. So in terms of the sort of the process that students will be going through when you're choosing your subjects and leaving cert and thinking about going to, to university in Ireland, that kind of thing. So, well, what do I want to study and what do I need to have done before kind of works. The difference, which I think is, is confusing, is how different UCAS is to the CAO. Um, and so what you've really got to start to get your head around in that is that unlike where you've got in the CAO a process where kind of the the points comes right at, at the end and obviously you're shaping your list on a sense of what you might get, but that bit happens. In the UCAS, you really need to have a very kind of clear sense of where you think you're going to end up when you take the leaving cert, because that's going to determine the application that you put in. So the UCAS system, the crucial thing to, to really understand is that you will be made offers normally through the autumn and the spring that are conditional on you going on to achieve certain grades. So it's a sort of a flipped way round to the CAO. So if you're thinking through a kind of a logic that a student would be doing, yes, you identify the course you want to study. That's going to have to be, in effect, the same or very similar courses across the five universities that UCAS will let you apply to. And then you're going to have to have conversations with your teachers, with your, your counsellor, about what do you think is the likely range of outcomes for you to go into those exams and then start to build a shortlist. So if you think I'm heading through the Leaving Cert and I'd like to be in the mid 500s for my, my points, then you're going to start to look at universities that might be between kind of 560 and 500 or however they might do it in terms of the H1s, H2s. You've got to start to piece it together that way. And that will give you then a sense of, okay, for chemistry at, the, at this level, here's eight universities. But if I'm slightly lower down in terms of my grades, it's it's these eight universities I can start to look between. And that's the kind of first filter you need to start to consider. Brilliant. Uh, so, yeah, very interesting and, and, and very different, as we noted. So the UK system is massive, David. So we're talking like well over 30,000 courses on offer. Where does a student start to break down colleges and courses and things like that? Yeah, so you need to kind of be looking at the two in parallel. Um, 
the courses is is the one where hopefully you've already kind of had that sense like you know most students going into their last couple of years of high school looking towards university will have a sense of the areas of study they want to look at and so the UCAS website has a wonderful course search tool where you can go into there and type in the name of the subject and you'll get reams and reams and reams of kind of subjects that you can have a look at and so if you put in say for business management or or chemistry you'll find loads of options and you can click on there and it'll start to give you little kind of course descriptions as to, to what's involved. So that gives you kind of sense of well, what is the difference between business management, management science, economics and management. Have a little look at that. Um, and then in terms of looking at the colleges you'd be choosing to apply to, that first bit of like actually academically, where are you competitive for? Will have to kind of be a, be a starting point. And again, you can start to look through on the UCAS website. It typically won't list the entry requirements for a student from an Irish curriculum, but you can look at it and go, well, if this one's looking at three A stars at A level, the highest you can get, well, that's going to be equivalent to 665 in the leading certs. And you can sort of come down a little bit there. Um, and then from those UCAS webpages, you get pictures and images of it, and you can start to think about, okay, where in the UK might I want to be? And then the big kind of three questions that we would ask, firstly, campus or city? Do you want to be in a city in London, in Edinburgh, in Manchester, where I'm walking around the city when I'm having that experience? Or do I want to be out in a campus on the edge of a city? You know, somewhere like a Bath or a Warwick, where it's all kind of self-contained. So campus or city. The second one is going to be the fact of, you know, what's going to be the sort of culture of the university in terms of traditional or modern. You've got some really old universities, St Andrews, Durham, Oxford and Cambridge. You've got some much more modern ones, Oxford Brooks, University of East Anglia, Sussex. So that one. And then the third one is size. Massive universities like Manchester Met, University of Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, with thousands and thousands of students, tiny little places. Donica, you and I obviously were talking before we started about St Mary's in Twickenham, lovely little nurturing university, little art schools, drama schools, that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, the campus versus the city as you know, the two really distinct experiences in there. You've got a sense of the kind of the culture of the university, sort of modern, traditional, and then the size of the university. And you start to see this as almost like filters. What do I want to study? Great. Here's the universities that offer that. What kind of grades am I going to get? Okay, well, here's possibly universities in that grade level. Do I want a campus or a city? What kind of culture do I want there? What kind of, um, of size? You see you almost knocking it down fairly quickly. So... If you work through a process, you might end up with a short list of, say, eight or nine, of which you then start to do a little bit more delving into the nuances of them all. Yeah, and, and I, I just worth noting for students that courses in the UK are very specific compared to Ireland. You know, we have the Leaving Cert here, obviously, is the A-levels uh, in the UK, and the A-levels things goes more in-depth in subjects where students can figure out, well, I do want mechanical engineering or I do want... Uh, biomedical engineering where we have a more general engineering so if you if you know specifically what you'd really like to study then the UK is is really really good for that and David you just mentioned points and, and grades and I know there's UCAS tariff points and there's certain grades and, and that's another big uh, kind of trying to figure that out here for us how does tariff points work I know the UCAS website and, and you'd mentioned it's really really good uh, have it tariff points calculator as well yeah so this is where the legwork is really going to start to have going for a student or indeed for, for a guidance counselor because 
it's not as systematized as it would be for things like the A-levels or the International Baccalaureate Diploma, where there's thousands and thousands and thousands of students applying to the universities in it. So you, you've got to do a little bit of research. The universities, because of this idea of a conditional offer, will be setting a level that they would need to see from a student to consider you for that course, what we would call an entry requirement. And so you're going to find very easily on the course websites what the entry requirements would be for A-level what they would be for IB, and that some universities, but by no means all, this thing called a UCAS tariff, where you'll see like a points range. So we want 104 to 120, whatever it might be. All of those that you're going to have to start to figure out what do your Irish qualifications mean in that context. So if it's UCAS tariff, it's really, really straightforward because you can go onto the tariff calculator on UCAS.com, plug in all your Irish um qualifications and what you either think you're going to get or what maybe you've been predicted if that's something your school are willing to help you with and get a sense okay well how many UCAS points am I likely to have if you're like to have 80 and the course is asking 120 you know that's that's not going to happen if it's not a tariff based thing and this would be the more selective and perhaps the more famous UK universities it's going to be a bit trickier because what you've got to do is to say okay I want mechanical engineering at this university that's asking for this or on A-levels. I then need to go on a bit of Google and Google the name of the university, Irish curriculum entry requirements, and try to find what those are and kind of cross-reference on. There are some universities, I'll give shout-outs to Bath and Birmingham here, who have massive big drop-downs. So for every course page, you can go there, find the international thing, and you can drop down and find Ireland, and it will tell you what those are. Um, but there is a little bit of legwork here to figure out when they look at me as a candidate applying to the university with an Irish curriculum, what are they expecting to see for them to not put my application in the bin? David, obviously Brexit has been in the news for a lot of uh, the last few years. What does that mean for Irish students in the context of going to university in the UK? Yeah, so let me focus just on the mechanics of it and I ignore the factors of politics and culture. Um, focus just on that narrow bit of it. For an Irish student who's been in Ireland for a decent chunk of time, three years or more, it nothing has changed um, currently at the time of recording, because we know that <laughs> that, that can differ. Um, but through the common travel area, Irish citizens have rights in the UK, UK citizens have rights in Ireland, and that has not changed because of Brexit. And in the context, therefore, of university, and student with an Irish passport, resident Ireland, is treated in England, Wales and Northern Ireland exactly the same as they were before. Now, Scotland is a little trickier, um, but for England and Wales, um, you're basically British in terms of how the university would consider you for the fees that you pay and the admissions process you would go through. Yeah, I think it's home fee status. Is that the term they use? Yes. Yeah. So with talking about fees, again, Another thing Irish students tend to look at, well, if it's €3,000 contribution fee here and they're looking for £9,250 in the UK per year, you know, that's a, that's a huge difference at the end of a three, four-year degree. How would a student, an Irish student, I know we've talked about this before from the finance perspective, how would you go about financing this for yourself? Yeah, so the 9250 is a really complicated kind of, marketing failure from British governments have done this because it's a nominal amount. That is the money that will go from the British government to the university for you enrolling there. 
But that is not actually money that you as a student have to pay. I mean, if you've got the money in the bank and you choose to pay it, then fine. But that is the deal between the government and the university. You are then getting a student loan. And again, as I said, nothing has changed in terms of Ireland and England, Wales. So you can get a student loan. Now, the student loan isn't really debt in the way that Donica and I with houses and kids think about commercial loans. Really, it's a graduate contribution. Let me kind of explain the nuance of that because it's it's really important to understand. The repayment of that money isn't linked to the amount of money that you owe. So if you go and buy a car and you take out a loan from the bank for €10,000, the bank is going to say you have to pay a certain amount of euros every month until that loan is repaid and we'll charge you a premium to doing it. But with a student loan from the UK government, if you owe them three lots of 9250 so what's that, 28000 just under, you're not repaying them in the same kind of terms. What you are repaying is a proportion of your salary over a certain threshold for a defined number of years. So if you go and go to the UK and say you qualify as a social worker, and you go and work as a social worker, wonderful job to do, but not very well paid, you might never over your career earn enough to pay any money back to the British government here. And when you hit the certain age, and it's changing all the time, it's written off. Let's say you come and you train and you work in finance and you have a really good couple of years. Well, you will be paying probably a decent chunk of that off. But if you're earning £100,000 a year, it's, you're still probably pretty comfortable off. And then you take a career break. You travel or you have a family and you earn nothing. Well, then the repayments stop. You earn again, it starts picking up. So it's very much the repayment is linked to what your financial situation at the time of paying it back. So the 9250 shouldn't be a scary amount because it's not really what you pay back. And the system is kind of designed in the situation of if you're earning really well, then we're going to want the money back from you because that degree is paying off for you. But it's certainly not going to be anything like you're paying on your house or your car or for your bank or on your champagne and caviar bills. Um, and if you're doing work or not working that is of a lower paid, then we're not going to come after you for the money. So it's a pretty good deal, apart from the fact that they sell it really badly because everyone thinks this is a massive amount of debt they're going to have to pay back, which is not really the case. Yeah, you know, to pay back, I know, until April after you graduate, if you're earning over £27,000 you were talking about, and then I think it yeah. works out about 9% of anything over that. So it's 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 not bad at all and very manageable. Um, let's get back to the application, David, because... The application, is, as you said at the start, is very different to the CAO. And one part that Irish students struggle with, really, because we don't have it over here, or don't historically don't have anything like it, is the personal statement. Now, again, a, a very Irish thing is feeling embarrassed about selling yourself. But that's what I always say to students. You have to sell yourself to the university. Tell the university why they can't pass on you. Yeah. What would your uh, advice be to somebody writing a personal statement? Yeah, so I, I think with a personal statement, you've got to see it as a kind of a fairly logical set of building blocks. Um, and we, my company and university guys, and we've got this stuff on available on our website. We talk about writing a personal statement like you're arguing a case in a courtroom. And you imagine that you are standing in a courtroom and there are five judges who are five professors of the subject you want to study. You are going to have to lay out your logical argument why I should be admitted for the subject those professors teach. So firstly, you've got one speech to five professors, so it needs to be a very similar subject 
because you're making the same argument. So you're not saying writing a statement for English literature at these three and French at those two. It's got to be the similar thing. And then you're going to present a logical case as to why I should be um, admitted to your university. And it's a courtroom. So you're going to present them with evidence. So if I take English literature as an example in there, that first paragraph, the first point you're going to make is probably talk about stuff you've done in an English class, the books that you've read and what you think about them. A second paragraph might talk about other kind of writing classes that you've done. So you've done Irish, you've done history, you've done um, a language. Again, you're learning those skills. Third paragraph might talk about your wider reading in there. But all the fact that we're presenting activities that you as the student have done, a class, an internship, your own wider academics, and laying that out. And if you keep focusing on that idea that I am trying to convince professors of these subjects that I am qualified to do their subject, it can kind of get narrowed fairly quickly. So my advice to anyone doing this is don't start with that blank piece of paper. Bullet points. One, two, three, four, five. What are five things I've done in my life that I can prove, can evidence that make me a good fit for this subject? And then you expand each of those out into discussing about, okay, what have I done this kind of stuff? And the dream that you should get to with your UK statement is that you can very quickly see the flow chart of here's why I want to study it, Here's the four or five things that I've done that show I can study it. Here's a conclusion which shows what I'll do next in it. And those interlinking paragraphs in between are going to have content that only a professor of that subject would understand. So I say to my students all the time who are applying for things like maths and engineering, I am a historian. I need to read your UCAS statement and not understand some of the stuff you're using because I'm not the audience here. Professor of that subject can understand that doing it and be, wow, this kid really knows this stuff. Let's have them at our university. And look, it's not only students uh, that struggle with the application. There'll be a lot of guidance counselors and teachers listening today who might be doing references for students. Again, it's pretty alien to us over here. And uh, even given predicted grades, what are the significance from a teacher's perspective of both of those? Yeah, so the references, in effect, you're doing the same job as I've just said. I mean, the the limits that you've got to work within for the reference are the same as the statement. So it's, again, it's the same idea. Get information from the relevant teachers that, again, support that case. So imagine you are like the expert witness coming to that courtroom saying, again, here's four or five things that I can talk about in this class, in that class, in this club that support that kind of stuff. So it's that same idea of you're arguing a case that this student should be admitted for this course. You may also have the job in there of getting a little bit of context around your school. So I know, for example, if the students have done, um, yeah, had a transition year, they've done extra projects. And that might be extra stuff that you would put in that a student wouldn't necessarily put into it. If you've got specialist programs or there's been disruptions at the schools. But the reference is basically that supporting um, evidence. The predicted grades, I know, is culturally really difficult. I think through COVID, Ireland's had a bit more of an experience of kind of figuring this stuff out than might have been the case before. And it is in that kind of mindset. I would say what you're looking to do is to be realistically optimistic about the student. So if the student's academic level is between two grades and you're thinking, well, they're constantly hitting this one most of the time, but maybe they're the one just above. Well, then you might predict them to be optimistic, but you're not going to go two grades above or three grades above. So you need to have a sense of talking to the teachers of the students as to where the student is and then use your professional guidance to think about, OK, all five or six of these teachers are saying they might be between these two grades. I might predict 
three higher and three lower on that to give an overall sense of it. Because as I said at, at the start, the offers are conditional. And so you need to give the student a sense of where they're going to be. And the student's going to build their five options of their apply to on UCAS with a sense of maybe one that's a little above their predictions, one that's quite a bit below their predictions, and three that are basically in the middle. So a little bit of optimism, but realistic optimism. Yeah, look, I've met students who who didn't meet their predicted grades when it came to the Leaving Cert and had their offer rescinded. So, you know, you're doing a student no favours if you're giving them something higher than they're not capable of getting, I suppose. Yeah. So, David, there's a massive accommodation crisis here in Ireland, particularly around student accommodation uh, among the bigger cities like Dublin, Galway, Limerick, Cork. What's the general situation around accommodation in the UK for students? Yes, I mean, the UK has enough student accommodation for students, but it's not always in the right places. And so there have been some headlines, so we called this in end of 2022, um, some universities having particular issues with students. Um, Most UK universities will guarantee to accommodate all their first years. Um, I'm saying most was maybe a year ago, I'd have said all, because there have been some issues, because where you're being accommodated might not exactly be. Um, And it's a question to ask of universities right now. In the cities, particularly big student cities, places like um, Sheffield, Newcastle, London, there's also a huge amount of private accommodation. And if you want that city-based experience, you might actually not live in university accommodation. Um, And there's a lot of that available. But if you are going to a kind of campus-based university and you want that experience, then you need to be really, really clear when you're going through the process of selecting universities what it is. And what you're also going to find in there is without getting into the more kind of complexity of it all, when you get all your replies from university, you're only actually allowed to take two of those offers into your exam season. One is your firm and one is your insurance. Quite often you might find that a university would be guaranteeing you accommodation or particular type of accommodation should you put them as your firm choice. They're using the accommodation a bit as a lever in there. So again, it's a bit of due diligence of just getting out there and doing your research. Don't just assume it's going to be the case. Um, you want to kind of be asking these questions of universities. If I'm going to come to you, where would I live? Yeah, and I think one of the major problems in Ireland here is we don't get uh, conditional offers. We're told kind of the last couple of years has been September, which doesn't allow a lot of time for first years to get accommodation when second, third and fourth years have theirs sorted since the middle of the summer. Yeah. So I suppose a timing issue, a conditional offer does make it easier in the UK to maybe look at accommodation, put a deposit on something as well. Yeah, I mean, it would not be unusual. Obviously, we're talking to students who maybe in their final year, they're getting late in the cycle. But you could be a student who's you know, applying for 2024 entry, so you still got another year in a bit of high school. You could get your UCAS application in September and have offers within three or four weeks from certain universities. Yeah. So you've actually got a quite a lot of time to do it. And though there are other options, you can apply by the January 24th this year deadline. It's now the last Wednesday in Jan. You can apply to UCAS Extra afterwards. You can apply direct to clearing. Getting all your ducks in a row and getting stuff sorted earlier just gives you a bit more time to figure this out. Um, and I'll say, if you're doing both, you can hold that conditional offer in the UK. Wait to see what happens with the CAO and then figure out. And as long as it's back in August again and not September, you won't find the timelines glitching. Yeah, you mentioned clearing there, and we won't go into it just just now. But I might actually we might do an Instagram live later in the year because mm. I'm a huge fan of clearing 
uh, and how it works and, and for students here as well. So we might actually talk about that somewhere down the line. But kind of the last question I want to ask you is more for the 23-24 academic year. And, and I actually always say to fifth years here in Ireland that it really should be towards the end of this academic year that you start getting your application together for Oxbridge for medicine, veterinary, dentistry, kind of in May over the summer, because when you're back in September, the 15th of October doesn't be long coming around. Yeah. So for these more specialist applications, you mentioned medicine, dentistry, vet, Oxford, Cambridge, there's an earlier deadline of that 15th of October, um, which puts more pressure on the student, also more pressure on the guidance counselor to get the paperwork, the reference, the your grades in. Um, and those are applications which have a lot of kind of different elements to them. And so the sooner you can get ahead of those, the better. Oxford and Cambridge are going to quite likely have tests that you would be taking um, and will be interviewing you. Um, medicine tests, absolutely. Interviews, definitely. Similar dentistry, veterinary. So there's just more moving parts of the application. Um, and so you need to get ahead of with that kind of stuff. What I will say, if you're looking at medicine in the UK, is you need to, in effect, treat it like applying to a fundamentally different process. It works so differently in terms of the rest of UCAS. Um, but because, again, the common travel area, you're qualified both ways. I can guarantee you, you're not going to see, you know, crazy high 700s with random allocation for medicine over here. Um, it's one of those ones where actually it's probably much easier to get into that subject in the UK than it would be in Ireland because, you know, Donica, you do a great job of informing the community of just how complex some of those really selected courses in Ireland have been the last few years. And there is a UCAT BMAT uh, course. Now, I would often say to students, because they're more than likely studying the HPAT here, to pick, you know, four colleges that offer or, or their, their testing criteria is BMAT or four colleges that you cut. Is that something similar you'd advise the students in the UK, pick one that you're focused on or do a combination of both? Yeah, so uh, this may be another podcast online. BMAT is actually going in a couple of years, um, so it'll change. But BMAT is more of a content-based test, and that would be normally used by a, a medical school that's offering a very traditional education, in effect, the kind of historic way of medical education of three years of an anatomy degree, and then you start dealing with people was a UCAT would be for those more modern medical schools where you can have problem-based or case-based learning, where you might be working with patients really early on. So BMAT is about, do you know a real heavy amount of stuff? And UCAT is more skills. Um, and so if you're applying to universities that are once BMAT, once UCAT, you probably haven't delved into the reality of what is that course? And crucially, if you're an applicant, what am I being tested on as a candidate for that course? I use a really silly analogy in this, but it kind of, plays true if you're saying i want to go to the olympics you've got to pick your sport first you wouldn't train for both the equestrian and the swimming you know you've got to know what am i trying to compete in before i can start to train for it don't try to do inconsistent stuff if you're applying to, to medical schools in the uk make sure you're applying to medical schools that are looking for the same kind of applicant otherwise bmat ucat and lots of other stuff you're going to end up trying to compete with clashing things and you're never going to give your best of it Oh, that's really interesting, Dolan, and you've enlightened me a little bit today, David, as well. Uh, so that's really interesting. David, students will have heard you today. They were like, who is this guy? How can I get in contact with him? How can I follow him? I know your Instagram is really good. It's very, very simple. The University Guys on Instagram and theuniversityguys.com is the website. You'd mentioned the website earlier. You have some information about personal statements and that. So check out the website, David Hawkins, if you need to get in contact as well. 
I really appreciate you coming on. You always enlighten me about the UK system. And I think you say I enlighten you about the Irish system. So it's it's a give and take in in this one. So I appreciate it, David. Thanks, Dominic. Always a pleasure to speak to you and your audience. Thank you.